morning, brothers and sisters. Today we'll be continuing our passage from 1 Samuel 14. We'll be looking at the second half from verse 47 onwards, all the way to the end of chapter 15. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to us. Your word rebukes us. Your word guides our lives. Help us to respond to you, Father. Help me to preach faithfully and help us all to listen carefully and obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If God tells you to kill an infant, would you? Would you be able to swing that sword and kill a child? Today's passage isn't just about obeying God's word, but it's also about what true obedience will look like. With that, let's have a look at the passage. As we look at the end of chapter 14, we come across this description of the kingship of Saul here, and by all regards, we see that it's really positive. We see in verse 47 how Saul takes up kingship over Israel and fights the enemy, and he routs the enemies of God's people wherever he went. We also see Saul described in verse 48 as a valiant defender of the people. This seems to be a very different Saul than we have seen in the past weeks. Where is the one who was insecure, afraid, and kept on doing all the wrong things? If you think about it, this Saul described here is exactly the Saul that the people had hoped for when they demanded for a king like the nations. Here is the king, victorious and a defender of their people. We look at verse 52, and we not only see Saul as a victorious king, but we also see that he has a dynasty ready. He has sons, daughters, and support from his family. Even more, we see that as Saul fought hard against the Philistines, he had the support of strong and brave men who he attached himself to. Things look good by the end of this chapter. However, we know that God has promised that Saul's dynasty won't endure. And so this report would make us realize what Saul could have been if only he had trusted in God. It looks good here, but ultimately everything is going to be flushed down the toilet because of Saul. So now that we have just looked at this verse to the end of the chapter, do you notice that this sounds a lot like a summary of Saul's life and achievements? We will normally see this kind of summary in the Bible at the end of someone's life. We will see many examples of this if you open the book of Judges, like when Samson or Gideon dies. So we need to ask this question. Why is this summary here? Especially since the next chapter continues talking about Saul. Imagine if the story of Saul ended here and David becomes king in the next chapter. This would be a good ending. Saul would be a flawed man, but he did what he can and Israel can thank him. This could have been a good ending for the type of king that Israel had requested from God. In some ways, this is the summary of Saul when his life had meaning. Later on, as we continue reading about Saul, he is a lost man, 
foolishly clutching on his kingdom as God takes it away from him and gives it to another. Next then, we come to chapter 15, and it opens with a message from God that, Saul, that, that Samuel delivers to Saul. Samuel gives to Saul the very word of God, and what a difficult word that is. He's ordered to attack Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Saul was to kill everything that had breath, even women, children, and infants. The message is clear. Do not spare them. At this point, some of us will recoil in horror. How can God order such a thing? Isn't this just genocide? Isn't this evil? Instead of answering this, I want to ask you this instead. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is just, that he is able to bring about his justice in such a way that nobody will be able to find any flaw on that last day when his redemptive purposes are laid bare? Because here's the thing. If you had answered the earlier question of could you kill a child if God commanded it with a no, then you can't say that you believe in the goodness of God. You can't say that you believe that God knows what is right and wrong. Your obedience is conditional on God being the same level as you and agreeing with you. So who is God to you then? How foolish then are we to think that our morals are superior to God? How foolish are we to think that our understanding and wisdom and sense of justice is greater than God's? As we ask this question about how God can do such a thing, we are revealing our heart of sin and distrust of God. The root of all sin is thinking that God does not know what is best for us and he is holding back something good from us. So yes, it's a difficult command, but if you trust God, you will obey him. Think of where we would be if Jesus thought he knew a better way to be God's king and he didn't go to that cross to die for our sins. Obedience can be tough when we don't understand. Yes. But true obedience demands our trust, that God is good and righteous and calls us to trust in him and do what he says. So we come to verse 7, and we see that Saul wins a massive victory against the Amalekites. He devotes to destruction all the people, but he makes an exemption, and he captured the king of the Amalekites alive. Not only did they spare Agag, the Israelites, under Saul's command, also plundered the best of the animals and all that was good instead of destroying them. So what has happened here is Saul, who has led by example, by not killing Agag, opened the door for the rest of his people to pick and choose what to follow. After all, if their leader is not going to fulfill God's word, why should they? And thus, because of this, 
the word of the Lord came to Samuel in verse 10. God said that he regrets having made Saul king because Saul has turned his back on God and did not perform his commandments. Now, interestingly, another big theological question looms before us. But what does it mean that God had regret? Now, we know that God is aware of all things. He controls all things, so Saul's failure shouldn't be a surprise to him. So the accepted explanation for this is that God speaks to us in a way that we can understand. God uses human language and human expressions as a means of telling us something that we cannot comprehend. After all, if we look to God and try to understand his character and what he's thinking, of course we will fail. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. However, in trying to explain this regret away, we miss out on something else, namely the fact that God chooses to communicate this to us. Well, it's not the same as human regret, which comes from powerlessness. God shows us that he does respond to our human decisions and that we can grieve him. God is not a distant puppet master who sits on a throne and controls people. There is real weight in our response to God. And that is what God is showing us here. God is a person and thus he can and he does respond to us. And thus, we are accountable for our decisions. So, in verse 13 then, after crying all night long, Samuel comes to Saul and hears Saul's self-deception. Saul claims to have performed the commandment of the Lord. And clearly at this point, Saul has convinced himself that he is righteous, that he has done well. And interestingly, notice in verse 12 that Saul had made a monument to himself. Besides the element of Saul's pride, imagine what kind of mind not only breaks God's commandment, but then flaunts it by making a memorial of his sin before God. Clearly, something is wrong with Saul. Saul then tries to answer in verse 15 and pins the blame on his people. And then he tries to argue that it's a good thing. Saul has convinced himself that his disobedience is not really disobedience, but something that will please God. Now, before we laugh at Saul, look at ourselves. How many here do the very things that God clearly says don't do, but we justify it and then say that it's okay to do it, and then we think that God will, of course, love us for it. Think about it. How many here will see dating or marrying a non-Christian as an evangelism opportunity and will encourage others to do it? If you do that, you disregard that God has said in Scripture. What fellowship shall light have with darkness? And to not be unequally yoked. Yet we use the excuse of sharing the gospel to justify our disobedience. How many here will think that it's okay to be cutthroat, unethical, and ruthless in business, because that's business, as long as they can give a large offering to the church to support ministry? We point to ministry growth then to justify our sins and to continue earning money 
through means that God does not approve of. How many are happy to have a woman preaching authoritatively from the pulpit over a mixed congregation as their pastor, despite what God says through Paul when he says that he does not permit this? Of course, we will justify it saying, she is gifted, so surely God wants her to preach. Never mind what the Bible says. We will justify it and say, but it's for the sake of building up God's kingdom. Now in all these things, we fool ourselves into thinking that we are doing something holy, that God will delight in it. But at the heart of it, we are rejecting what God had said. We are seeking to get what we want. In the end, if we are not careful, we too can join Saul in saying, I have pleased God when what we have done is being disobedient and grieves the Holy Spirit within us. Can God use these things for good? Of course he can. But that doesn't mean he approves of our disobedience. We have to understand that God can do good despite our disobedience. And our response is not to see the fruits and then try to seek to justify our disobedience, but rather for us to seek to struggle against our desires and seek to be obedient. Now, I'm not speaking here as someone who's better than you, but rather only as someone who understands the temptation. This message, as painful as it is, is for all of us, including myself. And if that is what we are doing, then listen to what Samuel asked Saul in verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? How will we answer that if we don't struggle against these things we do that is in violation of his word? Here in verse 19, Samuel strips away the justification and calls Saul out, calling what he does as bouncing on the spoils of war and doing what was evil. See, plundering the defeated enemy is a natural thing for an army to do. And the Israelites have never gotten into trouble for doing this. However, here, this is called evil because they have disobeyed God. This was meant to be a judgment of God on that nation, not something that rewards the Israelites. They are to see the utter destruction and come back sorrowful to see the terrible loss, not rejoicing because they brought back cattle and goods. Then we come to verse 12, and we see Saul shifting the blame to his people. They did it, don't blame me, is his argument. However, this does not stand because in sparing Agag, he had led the people into their sin. And also note something interesting in verse 21. The sacrifice is to be made not to our God, but to your God. Already we can see Saul's heart. He's just trying to please Samuel's God. He speaks as if this is not a problem between him and God. Samuel then answers in verse 22 and points out clearly that God desires obedience more than offerings and sacrifices. We too should look at this. 
our obedience is more important than the gains we get when we choose to disobey. No matter how good they look like, it is never justified to do good through disobedience to God. King David also disobeys God, but look at how he responds in Psalm 51. He confesses his sin before God and he acknowledges that it is a right heart before God that matters more than sacrifices. So friends, even in our disobedience, there is hope for us. God will not despise us when we are grieved over our failures to obey. So don't be comfortable in being disobedient, but come to God on bended knees. Samuel then delivers the final blow in verse 15. Because of his rejection of God's word, God has rejected him as king. At this point, Saul is no longer a king that God approves of. We then see in verse 24, Saul responding and confessing his sin, but note how his immediate concern is to have Samuel appear with him. Saul is still more worried about appearances and fears the people and how they would think of him. His confession here is a false one, made for the political benefit of making people think that Saul still had the support of the prophet of God. In verse 26, then, we see the utter rejection by both Samuel and by God when Samuel equated the robe that tore off as Saul reached out to grab him to how God had torn the kingdom from Saul's hand. The kingdom is now given to Saul's neighbor, whose identity will be revealed when we come back to 1 Samuel next year after taking a break through the Gospel of Mark. Samuel then says that God, the glory of Israel, will no longer change his mind on this. And thus we see that Saul is utterly rejected and the kingdom is finally torn away from his hand because of his willful disobedience, which has led to him leading his people into disobedience also. Saul then tries one more time to save face in verse 30. He asks Samuel to return with him and here he makes his intentions clear. He wants to be honoured before the elders and before Israel so he can keep face. Samuel shows compassion to Saul and thus follows him so that he is able to do this. But for Saul, it's too late and meaningless. God has decided and Saul's pretend repentance which only serves to give Saul political mileage, but the kingdom is lost to Saul. Then we see in verse 32 that Samuel asks for Agag, who comes thinking things should be okay now. After all, Saul has kept Agag alive so that he can boast that he has a king in captivity. Perhaps Saul could make a profitable ransom by releasing Agag. So Agag wasn't too worried. However, the one who summoned him isn't the self-centered Saul, but rather is the obedient Samuel. Samuel then pronounces judgment on Agag and hacks him to pieces before the Lord. Now, while this may seem extreme, do remember that this is the leader of the Amalekites. And what terrible injustice it is when all the people under the king gets killed for the sake of justice, but then the king who led them in their sin is nice and safe. 
Saul threw away justice for the sake of self-glory. So it was Samuel who had to give justice. What good is a king that is unable to bring about justice because he refuses to hear God's word? With that, the passage ends with God showing that what Saul had done in rejecting him is something that affects how God sees Saul. So how do we bring the things that we learn today into our personal lives? Firstly, we need a perfect king. One reason why Saul's disobedience is really bad is because in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel has warned them, if the people do not fear the Lord and serve him faithfully, the people and the king will be swept away. Saul has placed the Israelites in harm's way He has led them down the path of destruction. And this is why the kingdom was torn from his hands. So for us to have confidence before God, we need a king who will trust in God. And this is exactly what we find in Jesus, who makes it very clear in the book of Hebrews that God's greatest desire isn't sacrifice or offering, but obedience. So as Christ was fully obedient in all things, as Christ obediently went to that cross, God was pleased in his son, the king. And it is in this king, the perfectly obedient one, who can ensure that it is well with his people. There is no other leader in this world, no matter how well you regard them, who's able to ensure the good pleasures of God. So come to him with the assurance that this is the only king who is sufficient and will ensure peace and ultimately blessing before God. This is the king who will never give you up, never let you down, never desert you. God has given him all power and authority to safeguard his church. And this comes because he was obedient to God even unto death. So will you follow this king? Secondly, if you follow this king, then you too have to respond rightly. Saul's people look at Saul's disobedience and they sinned. We are to look at our king's obedience and seek to emulate him. Christ led the way. He sends the spirit so that we are able to respond rightly. And thus, we too are capable of seeking this obedience. So are we willing to seek to challenge our sinful flesh and not do what it wants, but rather listen to the word of God and let that guide you? So that means we have to look at how our obedience looks like. We cannot seek to try to explain away the word of God nor should we try to justify it by any other means apart from God's word itself. And finally, realize that our hope for justice is only in Jesus. Saul was not able to bring justice because he was more concerned about his own welfare. But we can see that it is the obedient king who can fully keep God's word who is the one who can bring about justice. There will come a day when Christ comes as judge 
and he will judge and destroy the enemies of God. It is also a day when our tears are wiped away and wrongs are put right. So for those of you who are suffering, remember that God is a God of justice and he will bring it in his own timing through his king. If not now, then when the king returns. Just as how Samuel destroyed Agag, Christ has destroyed the power of Satan and now waits to bring about full and total justice and judge the world and all that is in it. So be obedient. Trust in Christ. Seek to emulate him so that it shall be well with you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And as hard as your word is, help us to look carefully at what you have said, to carefully measure and understand your will, and to carefully alter our lives to agree with what you say. Father, reveal to us our brokenness as we try to make excuses, as we try to change what you say to suit us and help us to repent and put in us a new heart that desires our obedience so that we can be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.